Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Brad Ford at Illahee Vineyards in Dallas. Uh, it's June 8th, 2020. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Brad. We appreciate this. Thanks, Rich. Uh, first question, most important question, uh, why wine? Why wine? Well, I, it uh, has to do with my dad. This is sort of my dad's dream that turned into my dream. And you've already interviewed him, so, and I haven't watched his interview, so I'm gonna have to go back and watch that and see if I enter into that in any way. But, uh... <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> once or twice. He, uh, I watched Eric Berg's video. He's, his was good. Um, my dad offered the job of winemaker to me after planting this vineyard that's behind me. He planted it in the year 2000 and bought the place, I think, in 99 or 2000. And in about 2004, when the grapes were coming online, he, I was dissatisfied with my job, and he said, well, why don't you come make wine? And he had been instrumental in developing the wine studies program at Chemeketa, and so that, and I was working at Chemeketa, so I took classes at Chemeketa, and then got into it from there. That was the launching point. Uh, I know your family has a pretty uh, long farming history. We talked a little bit about it with your dad. Tell me a little about your kind of the farming history of, of the family. Well, it's um, my parents. My parents were not farmers. So my dad was a dean at Chemeketa Community College. My mom had a dried flower business which I guess made her a farmer to some degree, but she was also a stay-at-home mom most of the time until I got a little bit older. And her dad was a farmer. So that was the closest I got to real farming as a kid, but he died when I was six months old. So I was in a farming area. I grew up on a farm, but I didn't grow up as a farmer. So it was in the background. But we did have cherries when I was little, and then my dad planted grapes in 1983. And 1985 or six was probably the first time I remember harvesting grapes. And I was 16, or 15, depending on which of those years is actually the first one. I know they were both pretty bad. <laughs> pretty rainy years. Uh, tell me about being around, watching watching the vines get their start, watching a vineyard take take shape. Uh, did you, at the time, were you aware of any kind of interest? Did you have any kind of future? I'm going to be doing this at, at some point. Well, I always liked grapes because they were so clean and and nice straight rows, compared even to uh, dried flowers, was what I worked in a lot when I was a kid, and it the grapes. And, you know, as you can see behind me, the grapes, it looks like a garden. It's just really well tended. And things are straight up and down. And so that aspect of it is really nice. But I didn't, um, I didn't know anything about wine when I was that age. And 
we also, the vineyard that we had at that time was not a high quality vineyard. Looking back on it, it's not that I didn't think it was fine or that it wasn't tended well. We sold the grapes, but it was, it's in the flat part of the valley in loamy soils and it's just a very average vineyard. So it was a hobby and I didn't ever expect to be here <laughs> at that time. Before uh, being offered the job here, uh, did you had you gained an interest in wine at that point? Did you gain an appreciation for wine or were you still fairly new to it when you started working here? I was developing it. I do remember the first time that something went off in my mind that this could be really great and it was when I had a 1991 Beaufrere at Sandy M Wine Company in Salem. And that was the first wine I remember um, knowing that something special was going on. I mean, I'd had wine before that, but it was just wine. <laughs> and this was, wow, this is a really special glass of wine. And it was made nearby. That was kind of my first experience with Oregon Pinot. And that was probably in maybe the late 90s, I would guess. So you mentioned uh, you had started on a kind of a different career path before getting into wine. Tell me a little bit about your life before taking over here, and then we'll sort of jump into, into your work at Illahi. Okay, I was, let's see, I think my first, I was a farm kid, so I had a farm jobs when I was a kid. Um, I changed irrigation and uh, did some trucking, trucked around some farm equipment. Way more uh, advanced trucking that a 17, I would ever let a 17 year old do now on our farm. I'd say, no way, you're not driving that stuff around. Um, <laughs> so they were pretty trusting. But um, that's what I did as a kid. And then my first job out of college was carpenter. So I was a carpenter for about a year. Uh, I was a bartender in Japan for a half a year. And let's see, I did a little more farm work after college. And then I decided to go back to college and get a master's degree. So I got a master's degree in English. And I taught uh, English at Shemekita. And I was a grant writer at Shemekita. And I had that job from about um, 98 to 2004. So you mentioned, uh, you have, you've kind of a couple, a couple of first harvests. Obviously you mentioned harvesting uh, grapes as a kid mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, coming back. Tell me about uh, first harvest coming back, uh, this vineyard being planted, being invited back to this. Tell me about coming back, coming here and your first experiences here. Well, I had, in 2004, I did a semi-professional harvest at Vita Springs Vineyard. Uh, I say semi-pro because it was high-quality winemaking, but it wasn't for sale at the time. And then in 2005, I worked with Joe Dobbs. And in 2006, I worked with Evesham Wood, Russ Rainey at Evesham Wood. And that was the first well, five was the first professional harvest, and then six was my first harvest with a um, small um, boutique winemaker and a person that I highly respect, and, and I copied most of my style from Russ that I didn't invent myself, but I started at that point. 
So then 2007 was the first vintage here. I worked with Michael Lundin and we made wine in the full barn down there. That was our first winery. And in 2008, we built the winery that is behind us. Tell me about, uh, you mentioned that it's a lot, of, a lot of quick stops on your way. You mentioned especially Russ Rainey at Evesham Wood. Uh, what were some of the surprises as you were getting into harvest and you were getting into the, 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 the art of winemaking and the, and, and the science of it? What were some of those surprises early on? And what were the, some of the things that, that hooked you into wanting to continue? Um, yeah, sorry, I kind of backed up on that last no, question and, and didn't really answer it correctly. But uh, I'll try to answer this one correctly, and maybe we'll get back to that, or maybe we won't. Um, what were some of the first things that hooked me? I think the I enjoyed the chemistry because I was good at chemistry. So the first thing that I really enjoyed was figuring out how the chemistry of the wine worked. And that was, that turned out to be pretty nerdy and not really a good way to sell wine. I remember trying to sell wine by talking about pH and, and uh, what was going on and just getting blank stares, TA and, you know, what the bricks at harvest was. Things that you'd find on any tech sheet now, but the tech sheets are technical sheets and people who buy wine want to hear a story that's something that's interesting or how you got into it. Um, so I had to switch from my interest in chemistry to an interest in the story of winemaking and then into and then I also had to develop my palate so that I could build a direction to take that story in. So I'm curious about uh, at Evesham Wood specifically. You talk about kind of cribbing a lot of Russ's. Uh, what did you learn from him that you carried forward with you? Well, Russ was a big fan of Henri Chaillet. He talked with Chaillet um, in person in France, and he wrote letters to him to try to get his style of winemaking. And I think my style right now is always evolving it involves every vintage because you have a year between vintages there's plenty of time to think about it and alter what you're doing but you only get one chance a year so you also have this idea that you're never going to quite get it um, uh, russ did not de-stem and he was very um he wasn't concerned that much about wine flaws he seems i guess he could have seen laissez-faire because he didn't get into too much detail with the chemistry he didn't get into t worrying too much about each individual barrel he just knew his cellar really well he tasted often and paid close attention to the development of his wines he bottled with a hand bottler which we used um, here for about well let's see we hand bottled here for probably six years until we got up to maybe six thousand cases and then we realized we're going to be doing this all year long if we don't get an actual machine bottler so he was uh you know the thing i guess i learned from russ the most if i could put it into one sentence would be that you don't need expensive stuff to make wine you just need the love 
of the wine. And he was also uh, a viticulturist, so he knew his vineyard, and he learned his vineyard, and he cared about his wine. And the continuation that Aaron Nuccio has done off of Russ's legacy at Evesham Wood is really impressive because he also uses many of the same techniques. And between Aaron and Russ, I think um, Evesham Wood's wines are the best aging wines in the state. That, that's just my experience. Mm -hmm. It's not an opinion or verifiable in any way. That's just my, it's what, I, what I've come up with mm -hmm. in my tasting. He's just got these wonderfully well-aging wines, wines that age well. So is at the so at the time you're 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 also doing you mentioned classes at Chemeketa and, and winemaking. Tell me about the the formal education versus the informal education, and and at what point you felt like you were ready to take over a project like this. Well, I was never really ready, so that hasn't even happened yet. But I just got it. I you know I got the job because my dad gave me the job, <laughs> so that was pretty lucky. I mean, not a lot of people are the head winemaker after three years. Um, and so I just got into it with complete confidence and no uh, reason behind that confidence at all. But the best thing about the whole project was that the vineyard was done well. The vineyard was planted correctly. My dad planted on the right rootstocks and he planted the right clones and he planted it on the right soil. So. I mean, it's probably, you've heard many people say it's most of the winemaking's done when you pick. Um, I guess I just managed not to screw some stuff up and the wine came out pretty well. And we got a, a decent wine spectator score in the first year that we made wine here. So that was amazing. And it was also definitely, um, the work of Michael Lundin, who worked with me. He knew what he was doing. He and I both had worked at Domain Serene. So aside from Russ as a spiritual guide, we had a lot of the just general day-to-day um, -day seller experience that you needed to, to clean things properly and take care of your barrels and test your wine correctly and make sure you knew before it went into the bottle that it was gonna be okay. You mentioned something about Russ that I found interesting. You talked about him knowing his vineyard. I want to, I'm curious about you getting to know this vineyard. How long does something like that take, and, and what is it you're looking for? Well, it's um, it's really not a matter of what I'm. Well, you know, I'm not looking for anything specifically. I'm just finding something. So, what? has happened is that I've learned to identify what's going to come out of what place. What's, you know, now I surprise myself because I can blind taste barrels and I know where it comes from in this vineyard. And the vineyard's almost the same soil type. There's really two soil types between the top and the bottom. But with these tiny mesoclimates, between the top of the hill and the bottom of the hill, between the west side and the east side, between really little differences in soil type, there are identifiable differences in the wines. And so that's, you know, between, at the start, 
I wasn't able to identify those as well. Another reason I probably couldn't is because they're young vines and then they were getting older as I was getting older so I kind of grew up with the vines and then they developed their own character and I figured out what that character was. And so Russ had that down a long time ago and it's just not something you could teach. It's something that I observed in Russ that he did know what the different vineyards he bought from. He bought from us for years and they're still, Evesham Woods the only winery that we sell to now um, because we're selling our grapes uh, as wine. But um, yeah, I, uh, that's one thing that I continue to get better at is learning what the character of the grape that's gonna come from the part of the vineyard. And that helps to develop the wines. You talked early on about how this was originally your dad's dream and sort of became your dream. I'm curious about the dynamics of that, of sort of taking, becoming the caretaker of someone else's dream and uh, and making it your own while respecting the the vision that it started. It. How, how did that? How were? How did that work in the early years, especially as you were sort of getting your your footing? Yeah, that's a really good question um, because it's something that I've had to deal with, and I think the the most important thing in that regard was that my dad didn't have he didn't move into the winemaking so he left that for me he was a grape grower he was into the vineyard he knew that he knew his limits he didn't he wasn't a chemist so he didn't really worry about it after it passed out of the vineyard into the winery so what's happened is that now that he's retired i've gone back into the vineyard to understand the vineyard better mm -hmm. and now I work with Nathan Lickey who's a fantastic winemaker and so I've given him some of the um, I guess responsibility of working with the wines in the cellar while I'm I'm still in the cellar but I'm slowly moving back out to the vineyard to discover the vineyard again after 20 years and I'm also planting my own vineyard so that's kind of fun too Different site, a different site, or, or yeah, you know? it's up on the hill behind us. What are you doing? Different, what it. are you doing differently with it? Uh, it's a different soil type, so it's in the Mount Pisgah AVA proposed, which is now on the desk at the TTB. Hopefully, that'll be in the Federal Register in a month or so. But it uh, has a different soil type, so we're sitting next to Freedom Hill Vineyards, Emily Robert. Firesteed's Old Vineyard, which is now called Erratic Oaks, Croft Vineyards, uh, Open Claim Vineyards, and Ash Creek Vineyards, and there's a couple more that are a little bit smaller, but also great vineyards. So um, we're on the top of the hill, and so what I'm doing differently up there is I'm trying to plant in places where I won't die because it's really steep, and for tractors it's it's you can flip over i mean you can tell i didn't even believe it until i started driving around and you're going whoa because <laughs> this thing will just crush you if once it flips over um trying not to die and then i've used some i've worked with uh consultants to get the right ph in the soil and um rip it part of it i ripped part of it i didn't rip also the um I'm planting Pinot and Chardonnay, so we haven't worked with Chardonnay here before, and we're going to start this year. So yeah, that's what I'm doing different up there. 
this is a really nice vineyard for tractors. There's only one little part that's a little bit, little bit squirrely, but the rest of it is nice and easy and it makes working on it great. So you had to create yourself a new challenge is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's higher up, it's not gonna ripen as fast. The top of it's 700 feet and the bottom's about 500. And here the top is 420 and the bottom is 260, I think. So a little bit warmer down here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious also, uh, you talked about uh, you, you hand bottled to a certain point and then you, you kind of realized that you can't really do that anymore and that and you've grown significantly since then. So tell me about the, the evolution of the growth there and, and was that something you intended? Was that something that was intended all along? Well, with this size of vineyard, the potential is always there. And we, one smart thing that my dad did was not plant it all at the same time. So there was always a market for it as it was growing. I mean, that could be considered smart. Looking back on it, maybe we would have made more money faster because Pinot did grow pretty fast and the state grew pretty fast. But uh, it was manageable. That, that was the best thing. With our experience, we grew in size as we grew in experience instead of being inexperienced and having a bunch of stuff that we wouldn't have known what to do with necessarily. Um, so that was one aspect of it was just the growing vineyard. But then uh, a huge influence on how fast we grew was me getting married to our national sales manager who was I think we were dating before she became the national sales manager but Bethany my wife is a fantastic salesperson she's really researched markets um, in the recession the previous recession we got into a lot of different states and while um, things were moving pretty slowly in tasting rooms and that helped us grow really quickly because we were selling at that time a $20 bottle of Pinot that was good and that was happened to be a very attractive selling point as Pinot was uh, becoming popular in Georgia and Virginia and Texas and around the country. So Bethany is a huge reason that we grew. But then I can name everybody who's worked here, really. <laughs> including Eric Berg, of course, mm -hmm. who was so nice to talk about me in his video. Eric understood wine. He also knew how to sell wine. I mean, just listening to good advice from other people who've worked here, like Gabe Jagel at Scenic Valley Vineyards, Michael, uh, Kate Payne-Brown, who's now at Stoller, has given me tons of wonderful advice. And of course, friends mm -hmm. like Ben Castile at uh, Bethel Heights and in viticulture, almost everybody around here knows what they're doing better than we do, so we just ask them and they help us out, which is great. I'm going to come back to that because I have a question about that, but we're going to come back to it. You mentioned uh, a lot of people, uh, both as people who have mentored you in the industry and people you, who you, whom you have mentored. Tell me about that, getting to that role where you are the one dispensing advice uh, to people like Eric, to people like Melanie Schmidt, and other people who come through your doors. Uh, how, how, how does it feel to do something like that? What is, what is important to you to, to pass on to the people who come to you for, for advice on the, starting their own brand? Well, I, I never really think of it that way. I mean, I always think of it as sharing. 
I mean, even though Melanie, for example, is a lot younger than I am and way better looking and really friendly and fun to be around, I'm learning what it's like to be a person like that. And she's uh, just is attractive and people like being around her. They like listening to her. They like um, what she has to say. She's incredibly friendly. And so that helps me out. And then if she has a question about wine pH, great. I probably know the answer to that one. <laughs> But I'm learning from her just as much as anybody. Eric Berg had excellent experience. Gabe Jagel had great experience. Michael Undine was crucial to the development of the place. So it just seems to be sharing. If I know anything, it's just absolute luck. So. You might be selling yourself a little bit short, but I, but I can appreciate that. Well, it's not absolute luck. I mean, I try to remember stuff. <laughs> but, you know, if you aren't making mistakes all the time, you're not learning either. So there's mistakes happening all over the place. So you, uh, you talked a little bit about, um, uh, the, again, the places you've been and the people you've worked with. Uh, tell me how you developed your winemaking philosophy and how you would describe it today. What, what, what is the philosophy behind what you do here? Well, I... You know, maybe five years ago I would have said it was natural winemaking, but now that that's become its own term, which does not fit with exactly what we do here, um, that is off the table. But we try to do, we try to listen to the grapes and do the most natural winemaking we can do here. But it's not like we don't use science or we don't use technology because we do. So if that um, if you have a dogma in which those things are precluded, then we're not in that um, we're not in that group. But the two things that I think that natural winemaking goes hand in hand with historical winemaking, because when people were making wine in the past, they didn't have the option to be natural or not natural, or organic or not organic. They just made the best wine they could make at the time they could make it. And I don't even know if it had a philosophy a yeah, hundred years ago. What's, like, what's your philosophy of carpentry? I don't know, I just hammer nails into wood and it goes together. That's the philosophy, stands up. <laughs> so, or it doesn't. So, I mean, if you're a craftsperson, then it's just, just do your job. But you know, I went to college and I read a lot of philosophy and I love philosophy. So I like the idea of thinking about being a craftsperson or a salesperson and having a philosophy. That is a fun thing to think about. So it is a great question. And that's my terrible answer to it. <laughs> it's not completely well defined. I haven't written a book on it. It's not positivism or whatever or behaviorism you know it's just it's how we make wine here natural is good historical is good those are things we work toward but i mean i guess the real thing is to to build the brand and to have people that care about the brand and i think the most important things are that people like to drink it it makes their lives better and that we're nice to everybody that we deal with and respectful and caring and things like that. 
things that anybody would say. It's a good right? philosophy. Uh, I'm curious, I'm gonna ask it in a slightly different way. I'm, gonna, I'm curious what your answer to this is. Um, what would you, what would be the ultimate takeaway from someone drinking a bottle of your wine? What would you want their response to be? Well, I, I somebody asked me a question because I was in Japan. We have an importer in Japan now that we got two years ago. And I told you I was a bartender in Japan, so it was really fun to go back to Japan as having having this new job and not being a bartender. <laughs> and working all night long and going to bed at six in the morning. It was a disco. Um, so the going back to Japan and then you you've got the language barrier and most people in Japan speak enough English to help you get on the train and stuff like this but we're pouring in this building that wasn't there when I lived there it's this huge tower in Roppongi called Roppongi Tower and underneath was where the Oregon wine board had its tasting set up and a guy walked in he had a badge and he started sniffing the wine and he just closed his eyes he and it's put his nose down into the bowl and was just smelling and he would just go like that and somebody asked me well what do you think he was thinking when he was smelling that and my thought was well he wasn't thinking he was dreaming and to me that would be the best thing you could hope for because your smell is not a thought it's a, it's more primal than thinking so you're dreaming that that would be the best takeaway well, I've only, it's only happened once. <laughs> <laughs> once that you know about. <laughs> yeah, that I know about, maybe twice. <laughs> uh, so I know that one of the things you're kind of known for here is, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, your, your carpentry background. You, you have a lot of interesting projects you've, you've done here. Uh, tell me about some of, the, some of the projects you've started here, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in gaps if, if, if there's one I'm curious about that you don't mention. But what, taking experiments, taking chances, trying new things, uh, what prompts it, and, and what are the ones that you're, you're particularly proud of? Well, the, I think it's important to know your materials and know what you're working with. If you're, a, I think of a Japanese potter, also going back to Japan, you make your own tools. So at least that's the idea. That's what I read in a book. But you know, if you're out there having to make your own hammer, you'd have this particular hammer that works for you. So with the vineyard as the job, we started off working with horses. So that was, that's a thing I'm really, I guess I'm proud of it. We haven't uh, continued it completely. We've harvested with horses every year since we started working with horses and we use the horses to bring grapes up to the winery and the disappointment is that we aren't more of a horse-drawn vineyard because that was the idea when we started and because of just different events we haven't been able to keep up uh, we aren't we're not a horse-drawn vineyard but I wish we would have been able to do that and I'd like to come back to using more animals in the farm later but with the growth um, the growth is really what slowed that down. It wasn't so much the desire, it was just um, the fact that people here had to be in different markets all year round, just about. And spending our money where we had to spend it in order to grow is what slowed that project down.
but horses were great and then the horses linked into making a wine without using electricity which we call the 1899 project uh, Gabe Jagel Gabe Jagel coined that for us and we started using um, wooden vats and so just trying to do more historical production methods the having the horses allowed us to conceive of this project that was um, more ancient winemaking um, that's been one of them and then a continuation of that was our delivery of the wine to Portland in canoes and the 1899 trip has been really fun because that allows us to think of shipping and think of how things move around after you make them mostly in cars or planes or things that burn fossil fuels but we decided to try something that wasn't using that to continue the process all the way to the consumer Tell me about, about the consumer reaction to that to that project well it's really people laugh when they hear it most people if they're hearing it for the first time just start laughing because they must think it's so dumb that <laughs> <laughs> but we do it in such a small way that it's really maintain we can maintain it just like with the horses we can maintain a few days a year of having the horses here mm -hmm. and working with the horses um i did begin to learn to drive horses which was just not a waste of time at all it was really it's beautiful being out there and and driving horses it's i like tractors too but that's a really fun job and then being on a canoe in the river for three days and camping on the banks of the river is kind of ties you to lewis and clark and some of the early pioneers who came out here and so it's a good oregon experience and i think that's what we need to develop our terroirs to make our wine into real oregon wine even though it's very closely connected to europe and the european tradition too but you also are known for kind of a, a number of different types of fermenters and amphora. Tell me a little bit about, about the, the, the kind of decision making behind that and, uh, and the extent to which you use different kinds of fermenters. Well, oddly, the last fermenter type that we haven't used yet is a stainless steel glycol jacketed fermenter, open top fermenter. And I think we're going to get some of those this year for finally <laughs> so we've used a lot of plastic fermenters because they're the cheapest and most uh the cheapest thing that'll do a cool fermentation a slow fermentation so the ton and a half fermenters are the standby um, we've used wooden fermenters from used wooden fermenters to brand new wooden fermenters we have a concrete fermenter now that we tried out last year and we have used clay but not we have a kiln on the property which now is being used by the high school to do wood-fired uh, pottery projects but we still we've got one in development but um with uh andrew uh what's his last andrew beckham's mm -hmm. clay project we kind of slowed down on that because somebody's already trying it out but i still think it's a wonderful idea so i'm looking forward to the day when that comes together and we can try that out but uh, doing wooden fermentation with whites and rosé has been really 
a good experiment because that improves those wines. You also have a, a pretty robust sparkling program here as well. Tell me about the, the kind of the <laughs> beginnings of that and of the of the of the fizz. The fizz it was just an idea to make a wine that was fun, and I think Bethany thinks that's a bad way to sell the wine. So good thing this isn't a sales uh, program. How <laughs> fun! Just whatever. But you know, we just wanted a wine that for. In one way, we could use the some of the grapes that we weren't going to be able to sell and put them together, but also to make a wine that's delicious and has CO2 in it and is easy to drink. And so that's been really popular lately because it's more of a, uh, a fun wine. <laughs> Jeez, I said that way too many times. <laughs> Seems like something. Seems like you always have to have a, a project that you're challenge, something to challenge you. Uh, do you have any other kind of projects on the horizon that you're thinking about uh, for for future winemaking or vineyard? Yeah, we have. We're making the world's biggest press right now. Okay. And so, what? Last week we finished three cuts on a 60-foot-long beam that's up at the other property I was talking about, and it is going to. It probably take a whole nother year, so it's not really going to be ready this harvest. But we're moving forward on it, and so we'll probably stick it over here somewhere. And now I was, uh, first of all, I had the tree for it, which was dying, but it wasn't quite dead. So it's a good piece of wood, and it's a lot better use of that tree than if it had just fallen over and rotted. But um, it, one of the most fun things I've seen in my wine travels is the uh, big wooden press at Clovisieux. And this one will be bigger. It probably won't be as cool, but... <laughs> <laughs> and it also will be quite a bit smaller than the biggest press you can buy because by volume those things can fit something like 50 tons of grapes in them. But this will just fit 12 tons. But it'll have the 60-foot-long beam, which just looks really cool. What made you look at that tree and think, I can make a giant press out of that? Oh, my, uh, my friend who's the physics instructor at Chemeketa, Eric Jensen. I, I made a trebuchet with him when I was like 23 <laughs> or something. Hey, let's make a trebuchet and throw something. Um, so I was asking him, what, how long would this thing need to be just to match the hydraulic press that we have that can go up to two bar. And hydraulics are just wonderfully efficient um, tools of, of physics. You know, they work really, really well for very little energy. But um, he calculated it and he came back to me and he showed me the calculations and said, if you want to get up to about two bar, you're going to need a 60 foot long beam. And I said, Oh, okay. I got one right over there. <laughs> and then he backtracked. So if he ever watches this, he backtracked and said, well, you should probably test it first. I don't know if it's going to work, but by then it was too late. <laughs> it already got stuck in my mind. It's either going to work now or it's not going to work, right? Well, it'll, you know, it's just a way to pass the time, I guess. Um, I think it'll work. The, the all the different the different projects you had the different methods you've had is there 
Okay, uh, is, is there a lesson from that for you, or is there a kind of a through line for all the different kind of experiments you've tried? Is it just, like you say, a, t a way to pass the time, or is there something you're trying to accomplish with the kind of different projects? You know, it just makes coming to work every day fun. And you have to, I mean, I feel like I'm kind of stuck in this. I'd like to have a lot of different jobs, but this makes a lot of different jobs if you have different projects. I love wine, and I also think Oregon Pinot is the best wine out there. And, well, it's the best wine out there with its, um, you know, its dad, Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And so, but it does really well. And I love tasting and I love being a part of the Oregon Pinot scene, mm -hmm. if I am at all. I like that. Uh, it's tasting it and working with it is the real core of everything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so just all of these things are little satellites around that job. You talked earlier about uh, and, and about the, about the community, about the Oregon wine community, the, the, especially the Pinot community in the valley. Um, tell me about uh, be, being a part of that, and, and, and like you talked about, kind of the flow of information both ways, and and how you would define the Oregon Oregon wine industry today. Well, it. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to say things that you've heard so many times, I'm sure, but it's very welcoming. I, I felt. As a newcomer to it, I've always, I mean, and that's why I've always wanted people like Melanie, who came up here and is 20 years younger than I am, to really be welcomed here and to feel like she's got a place here and can succeed here because that's how I was made to feel 20 years ago when I started in on it. Um, I can name a long list of people that have influenced me and made our wine better and it could just be a small piece of advice that comes from Freedom Hill or it could be Steve Dorner walking on our vineyard and saying well you should try this and then I tried it and it was great or um, and also just the uh, willingness of people to open their doors up like Domain Serene was nice enough to hire me and I gained from that experience um, and Joe Dobbs people have been accepting and willing to make the whole project grow and it's not in the domain of one mind or one person but it's working in a direction which is really enjoyable and i know some people are scared about it going in different directions but i'm not i think it's great i think we're doing great what do you attribute that kind of sense to? It's not, not, not a normal thing for an, an industry filled with com comp competitors, so-called competitors, to be that kind of welcoming and that kind of uh, collaborative. So tell me why is Oregon wine that way? I don't know. That's a good question. I think one thing, my son Beckett, who's been running around here, is the shortest kid in his class. He's um, and he's really into biology. He loves ants and he loves birds and he is always reading stuff about animals. And to me, I think one really important thing about evolution is collaboration and symbiosis. And it's not necessarily 
We're, we're always thought about competition. I mean, I love football and baseball. It's fun to have people fight and one person wins. Boxing. I, I like boxing. I like watching boxing, if it's not too gross. Um, so, <laughs> evolution, I think, has been almost sold to us as this competition. And there's undoubtedly some competition involved. And the same thing with capitalism. Capitalism is a competitive environment, but people have to get along the same way. I mean, I've done so much better by working well with the machine shop or the welder that's making so something for me and getting that person a check right away and making sure that they're happy with how we feel about what they're doing. Or electricians have come out here and given me tons of advice. I'm always asking them how to do stuff. And yeah, they're asking for money and you have to exchange money and somebody's gonna win, somebody's gonna go out of business, but being friends with people works really well. So I think just the Oregon, maybe we're just surprised and maybe we're just really young as an industry and so we don't have deeply ingrained hatreds that go back for 15 generations. Maybe we will in 15 generations, we probably will, but they're not here now, so that's lucky for us. So as a, an industry known for, for, for its camaraderie, obviously, and, and also for being a very social industry, uh, clearly, um, has that changed uh, in, our, in our current pandemic we're going through now? Are you, have you felt the industry change, or has it re regained the kind of collaboration and social aspect that it usually has? I, you know, it's too early to tell. I don't know. You read some things that say the world will change forever. I never believe any of those things when I see them. I always think, well, this has been going on for a long time. There's been plagues for years. So it's just, and this isn't even a bad one, <laughs> unless you haven't, which then it's terrible, of course. But, and I'm not joking about that, it is terrible. But um, I don't see this as a huge long-term problem. I think we'll bounce back and be the same as we were before, but it's clearly a change. It is a change. So something's gonna change, but I don't think that's gonna change. I think what we've seen so far in the past couple months is just a lot of online ordering and social distancing probably affects this space because now everything's six feet apart. But we haven't had any problems yet or people complaining or anyone not wanting to follow the rules which is really how it's been for us being open up here for the past, um, uh, let's see, past 12 years, because in any bar situation, you're gonna have some bars where people are fighting and, and yelling and making all sorts of problems, and this is a bar where everybody's happy. They come to be happy. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how Oregon wine is in general. Uh, have you had to change and adapt anything in the in your winery operations and uh, and in terms of staying connected with customers uh, during this? You mentioned like all online ordering. How have you managed to kind of maintain operations here and and stay stay in touch with your customers? Well, it's unfortunate when you have a historical winemaking perspective to really be forced to use the internet and to be forced to use social media. I didn't really know how any of that stuff worked and now I've got an Instagram account and I'm on Facebook. <laughs> I was on Facebook 
many years ago and just thought, oh, this, I don't need this, this is dumb. But now I need it. I mean, you have to, um, you have to have friends and you have to keep in touch with your customers when, um, when you can't in any other way. Mm-hmm. So we've been, I've been forced to change that personally. Other people are already good at that. But if it, uh, you know, if it turns into a situation where we end up sending a lot more wine to people's houses directly and they're willing to pay for it, that is probably going to be good for us. But if it reverts to the way it was, we were fine before too. So <laughs> we'll, we'll change as we need to. Uh, you had talked about uh, not being concerned with the changes in the, in the industry, especially like some the ones that have some people uh, concerned. Uh, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What's it going to look like in the next five, ten years? And and has the pandemic changed how you view the future here? Well, hmm. You know, if I was, if you'd interviewed me a year ago and I told you this was going to happen, then you might want to ask me this question. Because <laughs> then it would be pretty obvious that I could see the you future. You knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> so if this hasn't taught, if this has taught me anything, it's don't answer a question like that, right? What's going to happen in five years? Who knows? But I think that, uh, well, what were you going to say? I was going to say, you got to talk about what you kind of hope for in the future as well, if you don't want to talk about pure prognostication. Okay, yeah, yeah, if I'm not uh, if I'm not betting on what's going to happen and not going to lose my fortune on it, I would hope that I can develop my other vineyard, that our AVA will be approved and that we'll be able to work as neighbors more closely on a project here. Uh, we have Open Claim Vineyards is going to open a tasting room in December, so it would be wonderful to have a collaboration where this would be a destination and you could go to a few different wineries. And then you could also access Van Duzer, which is the newest AVA that's north of us by uh, maybe 10 miles at the nearest point. And then Eola Hills area too, which is where I grew up and that's always been an important region for me. But it would be nice to see the wine uh, community moves south a little bit towards Salem. It'd be nice to see Salem getting a little bit into the wine scene too. What about as you look um, broader, and again, this is, it, can be, it can be hope or it can be prediction, but uh, will the industry continue to grow at the rate it's growing? Uh, outside influences, will that continue to grow? Uh, what do you kind of see, what is Oregon going to look like? size-wise, scope-wise, uh, in the future? Well, um, Portland might be a, a hint of what's coming up. I think as I've, in the past few years, I've been, I, I want to say in demand, but you know, people are asking me to come out and do wine dinners throughout the country, whereas 10 years before, Asking a young winemaker who's just starting out is not that interesting, but now I'm kind of getting enough experience to be able to talk about a bigger picture than just the barrel I'm washing at the moment. (laughs) So um, I go around the country and I hear people talking about how interesting they think the Northwest is. And it's gotten warmer here. So we're picking grapes in 1985 and it was raining or 1986 probably. 
and it's just not as cold as it was when I was a kid. And it's becoming more California-like. And I think people are going to keep moving here. I think we'll have our ups and downs, but the long-term idea of having property here is smart because it's going to keep going up in value. We've got water, which a lot of people in the world are pretty worried about water safety and clean water, and we've always had that, and we'll continue to have that. I mean, I think it's the best place in the world. So, except maybe Hawaii. Hawaii is pretty beautiful. <laughs> but you can't grow Pinot there. No, I've never tried their wine. I drove by the winery in Maui, but didn't go there. I wasn't as into wine back then. I was there in 2004, so I would go now for sure. Um, if someone were to come to you, and obviously many have, and, and say they wanted to join the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Well, I would, uh, I think Melanie Schmidt is doing it the right way. You find a market. And we got to do it kind of the long-term way, where we had the vineyard first. And the vineyard is where it's at. That's the important place to be if you're making wine. You have to have a vineyard. You have to know what your vineyard's doing. You have to know what your plants are doing. But Melanie and Eric, too, are both really good at knowing their buyer and understanding the market. And so that's where I would start probably because that was the last thing I figured out. And then I figured out, man, this is really important. I mean, I knew how plants worked and I knew how chemistry worked. And then slowly I figured out, or and then, you know, then you figure out how barrels work. And then at the end you go, oh, this is how people work. And this is the only thing that is keeping it going. So knowing how people work, which those guys already do, they're, they'll be fine. <laughs> how do you, uh, now that you, you mentioned the, the, the sort of the technical aspects earlier and, and knowing those first and, and getting to that second, uh, how do you tell the story? How, what, what do you tell people when you're trying to sell wine, out, especially outside of Oregon? Yeah, I think that's kind of one of those keys that those guys already haven't taught me how to do. I just talk to my audience. I mean, I figure out what they want to hear about, and then I talk about that. There's so many different kinds of wine tasters and wine buyers. Um, there's no message that I need to get across, but certain things would get repeated over and over, like the cool climate of Oregon and how it's good for Pinot. But those are just such basic um, points of understanding. All right. It would just be listen to your audience. Sure. Right? Makes sense. Just do what Aristotle told you to do a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, last question, philosophical question. What is wine's role in society? Uh, geez. Well, you know, it's been around maybe for a lot longer than anyone even knows, but at least since 8,000 BC, I think. Um, in the Bible, Noah plants grapes when he gets off the ark, and they've got archaeological evidence of uh, wine and vats from maybe 8,000, maybe 6,000 years ago, some, sometime back there. 
um, it's pretty important, but it, but it clearly doesn't have to be part of society because there's lots of societies that have existed without wine and they're just fine. I think you're just really lucky. Like Oregon is a great example because when I was a kid, wine was here, but it wasn't really a part of the culture. And that has completely changed. And now wine is a part of the Valley's culture. I don't think anybody could grow up here without understanding that there's wine here. Like when I was a kid, we knew that there were logs out there and there were cherry trees in the hills, and now I think every kid knows that there's wine. And we're really lucky because it's agriculture and it's civilization and sophistication. So you get a big gamut of what it's like to be a person when you understand it. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything Great. I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? No, that was... I know I missed a few ideas that skipped out of my head, but they're long gone, so. <laughs> That'll be for the follow-up in 10 years. We'll, yeah, we'll follow great. up, we'll catch them then. Yeah, I hope I'm still here. Thank you so much for your time today, yeah, thanks, for your Rich. answers and your honesty and your stories, and we'll go ahead and uh, let you off the hook here. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.